Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, November 5th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story. Business record honors the Denton's Davis Brown Human Resources Professional of the Year. Jennifer Bryant, Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer with American Equity. By Joe Gardiaz. Jennifer Bryant learned to answer the home phone in a professional manner early on, from about age six. It was all part of growing up in a family-owned business, which was, quote, the most important part of my education, she says. Bryant, who has nearly a quarter century of HR experience on her resume, firmly believes that human resources professionals must understand the business model of the industry that their company operates within and the strategies driving it. Currently Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer of American Equity Investment Life Insurance Company, Bryant was recently named the Denton's Davis Brown Human Resources Professional of the Year by the business record. Before joining American Equity in 2016, she held HR leadership roles with Bankers Trust, Aviva USA, and Wells Fargo Home and Consumer Finance. The award, launched by the business record in 2020, is designed to highlight an outstanding HR professional from Central Iowa for their professional accomplishments and community engagement. Bryant has worked across a broad spectrum of Greater Des Moines financial services industry, beginning as a human resources associate at, at Wells Fargo Home Mortgage in 1998. Everywhere I've been, we've had a slightly different people strategy because the business strategy was different, she said. So you just can't come in and overlay the exact same thing for every business. I still believe after 25 years, if company leaders work hard enough, that everyone should love their job. I believe that's the end goal because you're going to do better and have more fun and you're going to be healthier, she said. One testament of Bryant's excellence and commitment to creating and nurturing an engaged workforce is American Equity's continuing recognition as a top workplace for 10 consecutive years. From the earliest days of my experience with Jennifer, it was very apparent that we had hired a superior human resource professional, wrote John Matavina, a board member of American Equity, who was the company's CEO when Bryant was hired in 2016. She quickly gained the respect of her peers on the executive leadership team and set about transforming our human resources department and function into a best-in-class operation, he said. Bryant didn't decide on human resources as a career until she began working in one of her first jobs as an office manager at an industrial air conditioning company. I kept getting the HR questions and they were just super intuitive to me, Bryant recalled. Someone would come to me and sit down and say, I'm so frustrated because this guy won't do this. It was very intuitive to me that maybe they should sit down with him and say, you know, this isn't working and what can we do about it? Among her community leadership roles, Bryant has served on the board of Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity and is currently on the board of the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden, 
She is also a member of Des Moines Financial Executive Women. She has a master's degree in industrial relations from Iowa State University and a bachelor's degree in liberal arts and psychology from the University of Iowa. Over the past two years at American Equity, Bryant has led a significant talent acquisition and development initiative for the company, which has included bringing on more than 170 additional employees since January. She has also developed clear messaging as the company has moved forward in a transformative new strategic direction and led the charge on introducing an internal communications campaign built around five cultural beliefs. She was nominated by American Equities President and CEO, Anant Bala. As you can imagine, working remotely for almost a year and a half is not an easy task, Bala wrote in Nominating Bryant. Our company swiftly pivoted in March of 2020, and we have operated remotely since. Jennifer's strong sense of purposeful leadership has not only helped the company stay focused, but we have experienced tremendous growth, increasing our operating income from $120 to $550 million. This is an incredible accomplishment and one that would not have happened without communicating clear objectives within my executive team and across the company, he wrote. We caught up with Bryant and asked some questions. What are the biggest shifts you've observed in how COVID has changed the workplace? COVID was obviously not a good thing from a humanities standpoint, but from a workplace-only standpoint, it really opened up our business to different creative talent sourcing. So it really opened up the world for us because once we knew we could do the remote thing, we could source talent in different places. We're still West Des Moines-based. We're not going to change that. But when you're really having trouble hiring a high skill set and you can have them work remotely from somewhere else, that really opens up your talent pool. So that's been a positive. I also think there's a positive in increasing people's understanding of what we can do. I've always felt that people self-limit. The fact that we transitioned to working from home and that we kept our productivity up it really makes it hard to say that we can't do something. In the negative, I do think that people are struggling with it now that work is so integrated with home. How do I make work as meaningful as the rest of my life? How do I stay connected with people? It's hard when some of the value I used to get from being in the office was leaning up against someone's desk on a Friday afternoon and getting to know them better. So we're trying to create those moments over Zoom. What has American Equity accomplished in DEI efforts? We have increased our diversity this year. Number one, because COVID opened up a broader talent pool. But we also learned to speak to people differently in how we are marketing our company to our candidates. How well do we tell the story that we are inclusive, we are kind, and we do want you here. It was a really purposeful culture move. We challenged ourselves on it, and we had really good results. When we surveyed team members, people are open to different perspectives and people, and that's the first thing for diversity. How has work-life balance been for you personally as a female executive? 
I view work-life balance as an action, not a noun. It's definitely an action every day. Someday I would love to have my kids interviewed about this topic and what they've experienced. We don't talk about it a lot, but for me it was definitely moments that counted. I really, really worked on that. I bet my kids would say that I took away too many phone calls while driving them around. Or, but I guess they would also say that they learned to be stronger from me. Just soldier on and whatever is going on, you figure out how to dis disengage from it and still be mom. So when I get a chance to speak on this topic, especially to women, I say, work hard, but pick those few boundaries that are just absolute. Tell us about your family. I have a daughter in college. She'll graduate this year from the University of Iowa, and she's pre-med, so she's studying for the MCAT. Then I have a junior in high school at Valley. When our youngest was three, we reached a point where we said, oh my gosh, all we're doing is bathing and feeding these kids and putting them to bed and yelling at them in the mornings and getting them off to daycare. Something has to change. So my husband became a stay-at-home dad. He's about ready to go back to work now, now that our youngest is driving. What else is on your mind that I should have asked you about? In each organization, I have had a great sponsor or mentor. At Wells Fargo, it was Julie White, the head of HR, who told me to go for it in a job that I didn't think I could do. She really pushed me out of my comfort zone. At Aviva, it was Kathy Bauer who pushed me way out of my comfort zone and brought me into meetings I shouldn't have been in just to expose me to bigger responsibilities. I never wanted the bigger job. But I had people who pushed me, and then I loved the next job when I got it. I think we take this for granted because the kids coming out of college are so self-assured. But it doesn't mean we don't need to tell them that their ideas are good and give them feedback, positive and negative. From the Economic Development section, Business Record Jobs Outlook Wages Inclusion, placemaking. Panelists discuss challenges facing Iowa's workforce in 2022 by Michael Crum. There is no one silver bullet solution to the state's labor shortage, but if Iowa is to find more workers to fill open positions, the state and its employers are going to have to be creative to attract more people to Iowa. Members of a panel said during the Business Record's 2022 Jobs Outlook discussion on October 14th. Over the past year, Iowa has seen its economy surge forward as it continued to recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Businesses reopened. Events returned. Unemployment dropped and more and more companies navigated the challenges of establishing their return-to-work plans after more than a year of working remotely. Despite the encouraging signs of a faster-than-expected recovery, uncertainty persists as a large number of people remain unemployed, employers struggle to fill open positions, and the state continues to deal with a shortage in its labor force. The business record held a virtual panel discussion to look at what Iowa's labor market might look like in 2022 and what strategies may be employed as the state continues its recovery from the pandemic. 
The discussion, moderated by Business Record senior staff writer Michael Crum and Business Record publisher and executive editor Chris Konetsky, featured six experts. Almardi Abdallah, Vice President of Family and Workforce Programs, Oak Ridge Neighborhood. Amber Ramirez, Central Iowa Works Director, United Way of Central Iowa. Marvin DeGere, Senior Vice President of Talent Development, Greater Des Moines Partnership. Kathy Jablinski, Market Principal, Manpower, Iowa. David Surdam, Professor of Economics at University of Northern Iowa and Dustin Miller, Executive Director of the Iowa Chamber Alliance. Here are some highlights from the conversation. How is the great resignation affecting employers as they try to fill open positions? Amber Ramirez. Iowa is consistently one of the states with the highest workforce participation rates. We're consistently one of the highest states with all parents working. So when we say there are people not working, who are they? Let's look into that. There's the retirees. We've been talking about it for years, that this large generation is now at the age where they can retire and that we'd be in a spot that we're in now. Well, COVID just exasperated that. Employers need to look at that. What are creative ways to pull people back, either based on their interest or their schedule? Parents with the last year have had to figure out how to take care of their kids. And if they have figured out how to stay home and make ends meet, we need to find a way to attract them back. How do we figure out the childcare crisis so parents can come back? Youth is another sector we need to look at more. Previously, a lot of youths worked, but now a lot of employers don't look at someone until they're 18. And on the other side, a lot of parents, teachers, coaches, push youth to do extracurricular activities and not get that first job like they did before. We also need to look at the underemployment of our untapped talent. Dustin Miller. We don't want any disincentive to people entering the workforce. And we want people in the workforce. It's not a one single bullet answer. We've worked on a variety of things as far as creating an inclusive environment just addressing childcare, finding people who were once Iowans and bringing them back, being a welcoming community to people who were never Iowans or never even U.S. citizens, and giving people that need second chances a second chance, or providing affordable and safe options where a mom or dad who wasn't in the workforce has the ability to do that. These macro issues have had a pretty major impact. For 10 or so years, people were okay poaching from one another, and now it is to the point where everybody is clamoring to say we just need to get everyone in the workforce and then find additional, because it's not in the state to meet our demands. What strategies can employers use to attract more applicants and retain workers? Almardi Abdallah. Companies have been creative. But wage is not the only factor. It has to be coupled with a great benefit package. An increase in wage may not be beneficial if there isn't a great benefit to go with it. It's what job seekers are looking for, what their priorities are. Marvin DeGere 
It's around creating a sense of belonging, an inclusive and welcoming environment. The culture of a company is also impactful as far as attracting talent. Creating a flexible package as far as benefits and identifying who you as a company stand for and your beliefs go a long way as far as that talented employee staying with you. Wages are important. It does make a difference, but the retaining part is still about culture, that flexibility and benefits, and identifying what you believe in. Kathy Jablinski. We're seeing additional time off being offered, that flexibility in the workplace. We have associates who will take less money to have a work-from-home option. I know employers are really struggling with that. But can you offer flexibility? A lot of creativity and partnership with employees on meeting what they're looking for. The signing bonuses, but also referral bonuses, I've seen a big increase in those, helping to attract workers. The additional piece is tapping into different populations and also eliminating or minimizing those pre-screenings up front. What is the effect of raising wages on the workforce? David Serdam. My guess is what you're seeing is aberrant in the sense it's a temporary solution. You might opt for bonuses if you sign on and stay for a certain period of time. A bonus doesn't lock you in. My concern is these high wages may not be sustainable. In World War II, when they had an actual cap, that's how we started getting health insurance by employers. People started providing perks to get people to come in. I suppose they may start to find ways to do this that aren't cash-driven, but make the job more attractive. I'm also concerned if $15 an hour, if that's the norm, will push out a lot of mom-and-pop operations. Kathy Jablinski It depends on the industry and location of the company. If you're in a rural market and you need to be as competitive as possible to make the drive to the work site competitive, We've seen wage increases a strong tool companies are using. We've seen multiple companies increase wages by 2 to $3 an hour. We had a rural client where we had no applicants for months, and as soon as they increased their pay by $2 an hour, we were able to see immediate results. We're still not able to meet the total demand, but there are so many jobs out there you have to stand out, and wages are one way to do that. Dustin Miller. I don't think we know yet how this will all shake out, but certainly, especially for low skill, that wage sensitivity is going to make a lot of shifting, at least from what we're seeing. And I think one of the concerns for the hospitality industry in particular, that wage sensitivity, if someone shifts to a construction job for a dollar an hour more, and sees more opportunity moving forward could present some real problems for the job they just left. Is placemaking the number one job attraction and retention tool? Dustin Miller. This labor issue, this talent issue, all the numbers related to unemployment, we're fighting against broader population growth numbers that are very problematic. That is one of the things we're striving to work on from a public policy standpoint. For years, we had workforce development programs as a higher priority in our public policy agenda. But what we've said is you can have all the training programs in the world, 
but if you don't have a body, it's not really useful. Do bike trails, water attractions, soccer stadiums, and skate parks drive business every day? No, but it becomes an attractive asset from a placemaking standpoint that certain employees are looking for. They may just not want to work from home. They also might want to get on a bike trail on the weekend, too. It used to be we had a great job and a great benefit package. You should come. But we've moved beyond that because of large po- the larger population growth issue. We can't just get more people that are here into those jobs. We need a new influx of population. Marvin DeGeer. Placemaking has been our number one priority since about 1999. These amenities do draw people to the area. It makes sense to have placemaking as a leading strategy, but we have to make it a welcoming place to come. In the past decade, Des Moines was number two fastest growing city in the country in the foreign-born population moving to the area, and that has helped us in the needs we have for our workforce. We have to continue to create a welcoming environment where everyone feels they can come to Iowa and have the best life. But we can't disregard the fact outside of placemaking, people have to also feel that if they come to enjoy all those amenities, that they will be welcome and can enjoy them with their families and have a good time. The welcoming and placemaking strategy go hand in hand. Next is a special insert about the Des Moines International Airport. On November 1st, the Des Moines Airport Authority celebrated its 10th anniversary of transitioning from a department in the city to an airport authority at a cocktail reception hosted at the airport's restaurant, Burke and Chester's, with their employees, city leaders, business partners, and community supporters. Ten years ago, city officials and local leaders had the foresight to establish the Des Moines Airport Authority, a move that ultimately has led to growth and efficiencies that have benefited the local community and state, said Kevin Foley, executive director of the Des Moines Airport Authority. Formed to be an independent airport management organization, the Airport Authority was charged with enhancing the safety and operations of the Des Moines International Airport. A board of five leaders appointed by the mayor of Des Moines and confirmed by the city council governs the airport authority. Since 2011, the authority has uncovered operational efficiencies, increased air service offerings, grown passenger traffic, and tapped into federal funding to improve the airport campus, supporting over 7,100 jobs with an economic impact of over $650 million. The growth we have seen can be attributed to two things, said Foley, the economic growth of central Iowa and the transition to an authority. Under the new structure, the airport has thrived. Passengers experience many improvements when they arrive at the airport, ranging from installing the indexed parking system, which provides real-time parking availability in the parking ramps and on the airport website, to opening new restaurants in 2018 to regular announcements of new, non-stop flights. The airport has grown to have six commercial carriers boasting 28 non-stop destinations and growth projected over the next several years. 
There are also many accomplishments that the community does not see when they take a flight or pass the campus on Fleur Drive. For instance, since 2012, the airport authority has worked diligently to reconstruct the runways with the final construction phase, tackling the intersection of runways 5-23 and 13-31, slated for 2023. To me, the biggest accomplishments over the last 10 years have been the work we have done to enhance safety, said Foley. That includes installing new security cameras, revamping operating procedures to arguably the largest job of reconstructing the runways. The airport authority has also used space on the south side of the airport to develop more efficient operations for cargo and fixed base operators and corporate hangars. The development of the South Cargo area allows operators to better meet demands, while opening the east side of the airport for one of the most significant opportunities for the authority and the state, a new terminal. With plans to begin the design of the proposed new terminal in 2024, construction to start in 2026, and the opening of the new facility in 2028, the next 10 years are likely to boast even more accomplishments that will benefit the community and state. The decision to transition to an authority ignited a decade of growth, and leaders say they are just getting started. Now the Elbert Files, Dave Elbert's column. Bill Knapp and Downtown. The Making of Bill Knapp a new book by Simpson College history professor William Fredericks includes sketches of 23 people who were key to the 95-year-old real estate developer's success. The book begins with quick summaries of, quote, Bill Knapp's top 10 business tenets, end quote. Most are standard business aphorisms with a Knapp spin. For example, close deals quickly and aim for a win-win, and court the media, an activity at which Knapp excelled. Another core belief is, you can't do it all by yourself, which sets up Friedrich's sketches of Knapp's essential people. His two wives are among the seven relatives on the list. Irene Hill was Knapp's high school sweetheart in Allerton, Iowa. They were married from 1946 to 1986. Her support as a bookkeeper and advisor was invaluable during the 1950s when Knapp was launching his career. Later, he had an extended romantic affair with business publications owner Connie Weimer. At that time, neither Knapp nor Weimer wanted to remarry. He and Connie Weimer remain good friends today. In 1998, following a complicated courtship, the 72-year-old Knapp married Susan Terry, a 47-year-old businesswoman. We both got lucky, Susan told Friedrichs. We appreciated and encouraged each other. Other relatives mentioned Knapp's late brother Paul, who managed the complicated real estate deals Knapp was constantly creating, and Paul's sons, Mike and Bill II, who also played roles that advanced Knapp real estate interests. Bill and Irene's children, Ginny and Roger, who died in 2008, received mentions for their emotional support, 
although neither was involved in the family business. Friedrichs has written several Des Moines-focused works, including books about John Ruan, F.M. Hubble, and a 2013 biography of Knapp. The new book explains that Ruan and former Governor Harold Hughes were instrumental in Knapp's downtown revitalization efforts. Hughes was governor from 1963 to 1969 and introduced Knapp to Democratic politics, where he became the party's largest financial backer. Hughes also exposed Knapp to the plight of inner-city Des Moines residents, a move that eventually led him to become a major downtown player at a key time. During the late 1960s, Hughes urged Knapp to get involved in a proposed urban renewal housing project called Homes of Oak Ridge, northwest of downtown. At roughly the same time, Knapp was becoming a close friend of Ruan, who, like Knapp, was a self-made success. Also like Knapp, Ruan was a friend of legendary, legendary Des Moines lawyer, businessman, and investor, Joseph Rosenfield. Rosenfield, like Knapp and Hughes, was a Democrat, while Ruan was a Republican. In fact, Ruan was his party's main money man, just like Knapp was for Democrats. But political philosophy took a back seat to commercial interests for both. And in 1973, Ruan made Knapp a director of Ruan-owned Bankers Trust. Ruan is credited with helping launch a first wave of downtown redevelopment during the 1970s with three major projects, the Ruan Center in 1975, the Marriott Hotel in 1981, and the Ruan II Office Building in 1982. Knapp, who had started out as a residential real estate broker and had already turned Iowa Realty into a statewide powerhouse, also became a down, major downtown developer by the 1980s. During the first half of that decade, Knapp developed more significant downtown projects than all of the city's other developers combined. It began with the Hotel Savory, which he bought in 1977 and spent $7 to make over during the next three years. I think that must be a typo. I'm guessing maybe $7 million. In 1981, Knapp built high-rise apartments downtown for the elderly, Elsie Mason Manor, and a suburban-style apartment complex for downtown workers, Civic Center Court. Next came a major office complex, Capitol Square, and a high-rise luxury condo, the Plaza. In both cases, Knapp brokered deals with out-of-state developers, and both were completed in 1985. Knapp's downtown presence waned after that, but by then, Principal Financial Group, the Hubble family, and others were stepping forward to launch the next wave of downtown development. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, November 5th, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. The next story, Toggle aims to build a more efficient supply chain focused on independent trucking. Founders' long-term goal is to create a new Des Moines-based freight hub by Joe Gardias. Jeremy Spillman has a vision for using blockchain technology and, quote, smart contracts to bring trucking and the logistics industry into the 21st century. His Des Moines-based startup company, Toggle Inc., 
is currently conducting a private beta test of its new blockchain-driven digital freight management platform. Toggle's team of innovators has built a new type of end-to-end -end supply chain management system that aims to automate many of the current manual, labor-intensive processes used in the shipping industry. The startup recently completed a seed funding round in which it raised $1.6 million, which the company will use to feel a fuel a beta test with dozens of independent trucking companies and about 50 shippers across the country. Although the company will begin as a software-as-a-service business, Toggle's longer-range goal is to build its own freight terminal to serve independent truckers in Des Moines. Using the Toggle platform, the independents will be able to work together to connect regional runs into seamless long-haul loads. Spillman, who most recently worked in the commercial real estate industry for JLL and NAI Optimum, spent much of his early career in the logistics business, working his way up in operations management with UPS. In 2019, he started his own commercial real estate firm, Capstone Real Estate. He formulated the concept for Toggle in 2017 and has since built a team of other transportation and logistics experts to develop it. While the venture predates the pandemic, the historic global supply chain disruptions that the pandemic has triggered make Toggle's value proposition extremely compelling, Spillman said. We couldn't have picked a better time to bring this to the market, he said. This is stuff we've been trying to explain for the last couple years to folks, and then the pandemic happened. In February, President Joe Biden signed an executive order directing a whole-of-government approach to addressing supply chain vulnerabilities and finding ways to address bottlenecks and shortages, which are now threatening to prevent goods from reaching retailers' shelves in time for the critical holiday shopping season. Spillman says Toggle's approach could help address some of the inefficiencies built into the logistics system. On a broad scale, Toggle aims to create an overall better environment that can address the industry's chronic driver shortage and help alleviate the feast or famine pendulum between freight brokers and carriers. Toggle's business model is focused on small, independent contract carriers that operate one to six trucks, which make up about 90% of the trucking population, he said. Right now, freight brokers are kind of the gatekeepers, so when there's not much freight to haul, they'll hand-select their carriers that they like using. But they also tend to gouge, so they'll take more of that percentage in bad times because that's when they make the money. In good times, like we're seeing now, truck drivers are making money and freight brokers don't have a lot of negotiating power because there's so much freight out there. What we would like to do is change that cat and mouse game that goes back and forth and ultimately drive the cost down for the entire market, he said. The software platform will provide data-rich transparency to companies shipping freight anticipating and adjusting route plans to tighten arrival window accuracy. Increased efficiency also aims to reduce fuel costs, waste, and carbon emissions. Toggle's technology also provides real-time quotes, eliminating needless negotiation for both parties. 
A key to Toggle's business model is its use of smart contracts, a particular type of blockchain technology. Smart contracts allowed us to use multiple independents to break up that long haul run into regional runs. So that's really where the first leg of it started to come about. Blockchain smart contracts allow us to do things that create that secure environment, Spillman said. Current freight management systems are based on models developed in the 1950s and 1960s, he said, which makes it very labor intensive. You have a huge human capital component to be able to drive a lot of the processes, and it's very manual in orientation. The technology to automate a lot of those processes really just wasn't around until the last five years, he said. Organized as a C corporation, Toggle has seven investors on its board currently. The company is actively speaking with four venture capital firms, two located in Iowa and two on the coasts, as a potential option for a Series A funding round late next year, Spillman said. We will either go down that road with a venture capital partner or private equity firm, or we, we may continue just raising local and regional monies here for the time being, he said. Toggle's goal is to have its proof of concept in hand by completing its beta product testing by January and expects to undertake a full market rollout by the end of the second quarter of 2022. Sweet Shots, a golf entertainment venue, is planned in West Des Moines, south of Grand Avenue, by Kathy A. Bolton. A golf entertainment facility with a 250-yard driving range is planned in West Des Moines near a recently completed recreation complex, the business record has learned. Developer Paul Coney is partnering with Fargo, North Dakota developer Kevin Christensen to bring Sweet Shots to a site south of Grand Avenue and west of Interstate Highway 35 in West Des Moines. County said the developers have a contract to purchase about 25 acres from Benjamin Lounsbury and Andrew Lounsbury. This concept has been talked about in this market for a long time, and now it's coming, said County CEO of Des Moines Industrial LLC, which is developing the $25 million transload project in Des Moines and is also involved with several other projects in the Des Moines area. One of the positive byproducts of this pandemic is that golf became very popular, he said. We think that this bodes well for this concept. Sweet Shots will include a 50,000-square-foot facility with a restaurant, bar, and 60 climate-controlled bays. A putting green and simulators will be at the facility where guests can also be custom-fitted with golf clubs, buy or get clubs repaired, and get golf lessons. Total capitalization of the project is estimated at about $26 million, County said. County said he is in a 50-50 partnership with Christensen, who also is a partner in Sweet Shots. Christensen Companies is the project's general contractor and is providing design services. Sweet Shots, which is opening its first facility in January in Fargo, will be powered by top tracer range technology that allows golfers to see real-time flight and distance of a ball after it is hit. 
Top Tracer Range is owned by Top Golf Entertainment, the popular indoor golf venue that is found in large metropolitan cities in the U.S. and internationally. Top Golf isn't necessarily looking to come into markets the size of a Fargo or Des Moines, said Mark Johnson, president and CEO of Sweet Shots. By offering Top Tracer to groups like ours to apply it how we saw fit in our community, it was a great match, he said. Johnson said experts from Top Golf worked with backers of Sweet Shots to design a facility. However, several differences exist between Sweet Shots and Top Golf, he said. Sweet Shots will provide real golf balls to guests rather than limited flight balls. Also, the first level of the facility will be geared toward golfers and include an indoor putting room with putt view technology that illuminates the track the ball needs to follow to fall into the hole. Included on the first level will be a learning academy and simulators for golf and other activities. The second and third floors will be geared to the growing entertainment side of golf, Johnson said. There are folks who have been hesitant to take part in a golf-centered fundraising activity because of the time it takes to play or because they had never played. We've broken down some of the barriers. Some of the folks that are having the most fun are non-golfers. This isn't as intimidating as a golf course, and it's more time-efficient than a golf course, Johnson said. Sweet Shots will be located in a rapidly growing area of West Des Moines. The city this fall opened its mid-American energy company RecPlex at 6500 Grand Avenue that includes two ice rinks, a 150,000-square-foot field house, an e-sports center, and outdoor turfs. In addition, a construction of Des Moines University's new campus at 8025 Grand Avenue is underway and is expected to be completed by 2023. A two-story office building is under construction at 5754 Raccoon River Drive, just east of Des Moines Area Community College's West Campus. A residential development that will include apartments is planned north of DMU's campus. The golf entertainment facility will be located on about 10 acres. Plans have not been disclosed about what could be on the remainder of the site. We think that this piece of ground is ideal for Sweet Shots, County said. It's near a lot of developments already happening, and it's near the interstate. We really do think it's the right place and the right time for this to happen, he said. Construction is expected to begin in mid-2022 and be completed by summer of 2023. Before that can happen, the land needs to be rezoned and the site plan approved by various city groups. This is an aggressive timeline, but the fact that they've done this before and the city of West Des Moines is pretty efficient when it comes to their site plan approval process will allow this to get going soon, County said. Growing interest in golf by the numbers from the National Golf Foundation. 36.9 million. The number of people ages 6 and older who played both on-course and off-course golf in 2020. 24.8 million played on a golf course. 12.1 million participated in off-course off golf activities like driving ranges, indoor golf simulators, or golf entertainment venues. 5.9 million. 
the number of 18 to 34-year-olds who played golf on a course in 2020. This age group is one of golf's biggest customer segments. 5 million, the number of 18 to 34-year-olds who participated in off-course golf in 2020. And 3 million, a record-setting number of people who played golf for the first time in 2020. In 2011, there were 1.5 million new golfers. Merged Nonprofits Announce Launch of Ellipsis by Michael Crum. A new organization formed by the merger of Youth Homes of Mid-America and Youth Emergency Services and Shelter announced its branding today and its plans for expanded services to ensure what one leader said is the organization's no-wrong-door philosophy. With today's announcement of the brand also comes the launch of the Ellipsis website and the official first day of work for the new consolidated organization. The new organization, Ellipsis, is the result of a year-long conversation between the two former nonprofit groups to see if merging to enhance services while streamlining some of the operational costs would make sense. That conversation was guided with the help of Canary Consulting Group and led to the decision that a merger would be beneficial to both organizations and the clients they serve. With some really diligent conversation, some homework, some question and answer of what this could look like, and what are our strengths and what are our opportunities, it's almost unreal how well things came together from the perspective of one agency's strengths being the other's targeted areas for growth and vice versa, said Chris Copeland, CEO of Ellipsis. It was just sort of this beautiful synergy, working with each other's strengths and picturing what that could look like as a merged entity, she said. Why Ellipsis? Copeland said the name of the new organization represents a pause in the lives of their clients and their families, giving them an opportunity to find a new path to take toward healing. It gives us an opportunity to meet a kid and a family where they are at and help them get to a place where they can rewrite their story, she said. Copeland said the combined resources will help Ellipsis expand services that were offered by the two previous organizations. We really plan to offer a continuum of care in a way that allows kids and families to come to our door and there not be a wrong door, she said. That includes prevention, diversion, and support programs to help keep families intact, temporary shelter placement when needed, residential treatment, and services to help children transition into adulthood, said Copeland, who served as executive director of Youth Homes of Mid-America before taking over the reins of the new merged organization. Ellipsis currently serves at least 750 children and their families on any given day, and that number is expected to grow, she said. Copeland said conversations about the merger began before the onset of the coronavirus pandemic with work by an exploratory committee beginning in October 2020. While the effects of the pandemic highlighted why combining the organizations made sense, it was not an impetus for the decision, she said. 
The merger, announced earlier this year, will not result in any layoffs or elimination of staff, Copeland said. We're in a workforce shortage, and it's creating a crisis in our service line across the state, she said. While the merger created some efficiencies when it comes to back office and supportive services, it wasn't a headcount issue. It was more that we could have one IT company instead of two. We can have one electronic health record instead of two. We can go through accreditation one time. We're in a business where you can't do your work without people, Copeland said, and the people have to be present 24-7 in a lot of our services, so we're absolutely looking to hire. Travis Sheets, a member of the prior YESS board and current president of the new Ellipsis board, said the next steps are continued integration and the acceleration of some of the expanded services. We're looking at sources of funding that might help offer retention and attractions to our employees, and we're hoping to get community awareness and support around what we're doing and the needs that help us accelerate adding those services and helping those kids and families in the near term, said Sheets, who served on the exploratory committee that researched a proposed merger. Sheets, who has a background in mergers and acquisitions, said the decision to merge developed organically from the leaders of the two organizations and was not forced by outside pressures or circumstances. It came from the leaders of these organizations saying, we see the way the winds are blowing and we should be having these discussions, said Sheets, vice president and general counsel of BH Companies. It's been a great collaborative process from the beginning, he said. And that, Sheets said, will help Ellipsis have a strong foundation moving forward. I have a lot of hope that the way we worked together, the way we've been able to seamlessly combine the boards, means we have a really strong platform for growth and to expand the services pretty quickly, he said. From the Business Records Fearless column, being Herself, Deanna Strabel Sotout, by Macola DeRue. Speaking up used to be a struggle for Deanna Strabel Sotout. When she was in her 30s, she became the youngest person to hold the position of Senior Vice President at Principal Financial Group, one of the largest financial companies in the world. But in those executive meetings, she often found herself surrounded by coworkers 20 to 25 years older, most of them men, men with far more experience. It was intimidating and a little lonely. I wasn't comfortable expressing my opinions, Strabel Sotout said. And if you've ever been in a group that you don't participate in, you know that it just gets harder and harder to speak up she said. So she talked to her boss and made it her goal to speak at least three times every meeting, even if that meant a quick thought or a question or a summarization. For a few months, she checked off those boxes and her mentality changed. It slowly became less scary, more natural, Strabel Sotout said. If I hadn't gotten through that, I wouldn't be where I am today. 
Building confidence in the boardroom was just the next in a string of life lessons Strabel Sotout learned while bringing her own kind of fearlessness to work. Rising from small-town Iowan to first-generation college student to chief financial officer at principal, a working mom and a caregiver for much of that time. Now she's passing on her experience to others. Strabel Sotout, 52, describes her professional life in three chapters. After finishing college at Northwestern University, she started at principal in 1990 as an actuary. In the mid-1990s, she ran various product lines within principal's insurance businesses and was named president of U.S. Insurance Solutions in 2015. In 2017, she became chief financial officer. Through each chapter, she watched as other women leaders copied the styles and personalities of men. They didn't let their guard down. Strabel Sotout wanted to bring her full self to the executive level, to not change who she was to fit someone else's ideal. She made it a point to tell stories about her family to coworkers. She openly juggled attending their sporting events and concerts with her office schedule. Later, she learned how impactful those actions were to her women peers. I wanted others to see that you can be successful in your own way, Strabel Sotout said. She has plenty of firsthand experience stepping outside her comfort zone. In 1992, she volunteered to work on assignment in Belgium. She was 23, hadn't left the country before, and was doing it alone. Belgium set me up for the 10-plus other times that I stepped up to hurdles I had to clear, Strabel Sotout said. Now, as a mentor for countless young professionals and executives in the finance industry, Strabel Sotout uses those experiences to help others find their own career paths. She hopes to give them a, quote, different image of what a successful business person can be, end quote, and assure them there's no right way to grow. Throughout the past two decades, she and her spouse, Dwight, have balanced work and family, which many young women face in their professional lives. According to the American Association of University Women, 23% of working mothers say they've been treated as if they aren't committed to their work because they have kids. For Strabel Sotout, it's not about balance, but finding an organizational fit for your life. A workplace that's flexible enough to allow her to focus more on her job at some times and more on family or personal life at others. Principal provided that flexibility and it's been invaluable. I'm a down-to-earth executive, Strabel Sotout said, and I think I've helped people, especially working mothers, see that advancement is an option at principle. Her thinking influences principal's culture. Strabel Sotout is passionate about bringing different perspectives to work. She believes having a variety of voices fosters better decisions and ultimately better business. If team members can bring their full selves to work, she says, they'll be more productive and happier. She said, encouraging diverse teams and leading those teams ensures everyone has a voice. 
It's the first foundation to making sure everyone finds their way to fearlessness at work. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, November 5th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.